Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When it came to be sexually aroused, he was plagued with these fantasies, with these thoughts about wanting to uh, harm and subjugate and even murder women. And this was extremely arousing for him with these thoughts running through his head. For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following interview with Dr. Fred Berlin was recorded in August 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series, Making a Monster. An American psychiatrist and sexologist specializing in sex offenses, Dr. Berlin has been an attending psychiatrist at Baltimore's Johns Hopkins Hospital since 1978. Dr. Berlin has appeared as an expert witness in numerous high-profile trials, including that of Jeffrey Dahmer. Here, Dr. Berlin discusses American serial killer Michael Ross. Caution, the subject matter of this interview contains graphic descriptions and is often very disturbing. When I was first contacted by Mr. Ross's attorneys, I didn't know anything about the, the case. I'd never heard of him. Now, before I actually interviewed him, I did want to see a lot of information about him. I didn't want to just depend upon what he was telling me. And so I'd seen police reports, uh, things of that nature. In fact, one of the things that impressed me early on or interested me early on is that he had simply been a suspect when the police had questioned him. They didn't necessarily have enough proof about anything to prosecute at that point. And when they told him that he should confess if he was the killer for the sake of the victims, he actually did confess at that point and led them to the, the bodies, which I found to be a, a somewhat unusual circumstance. Well, Mr. Ross was at the time being held in, in, uh, in a prison. Uh, again, it's been many years, so I don't have specific details, but um, uh, certainly uh, I was able to see him without anything intervening. I was able to sit at a table across from him. Uh, we were able to have a, a conversation without any barriers. Uh, I had numbers of questions that I asked him, and I simply uh, wrote down and took notes during the course of that process. 
but initially he seemed to, to be almost like a computer. In other words, he could provide me with information, but much of this was information about tied to very emotional tied events, emotionally tied types of events. Uh, he'd killed people, there were victims, there was suffering, there was criminal activity, and yet he was just talking about it in a way that seemed very matter of fact. Um, I later learned that he was just trying not to be so much in touch with his own feelings because of the pain that would cause, but my initial impression was he was simply talking about this almost like he was in a third person rather than speaking as someone who had taken the lives of eight innocent people. I wasn't clear in the beginning why Michael Ross seemed to be talking in, in a way that was so devoid of emotion, that seemed to show so little empathy. And there were various possibilities running through my mind. I, I was worried whether he was just a person who had no sense of conscience. Maybe he wasn't able to feel the enormity of what it was he, he did. Uh, another possibility though, and I think this turned out to be the case, was that it was just so disturbing to him to have to accept the kind of person he was, to accept the harm that he'd done to others, that he just wasn't going to allow himself to be in touch with those very painful feelings. In my experience, it's very unusual for an individual who's committed serious crimes to admit it if they're not in a situation where it's necessary. Uh, people's instinct for self-preservation cuts in. They understand that their life is going to come to an end as they've known it if they confess. And so the fact that Michael Ross was willing when it wasn't clear that they had sufficient evidence to confess uh, was something that suggested to me that he really wanted to end all of this and he wanted to be open about it. And what impressed me even more is that he hadn't confessed at the very beginning, but actually did so when the police said, if you've done this, it's important for the sake of the victim's families that you do this, that it not happen to someone else, and that they get some kind of closure. All of that I thought was quite remarkable for somebody who had taken the lives of so many innocent individuals. Very few of us, of course, will talk very openly with others about our own sexual fantasies, desires, thoughts, urges, certainly to do it in a situation where one is concerned that others are going to condemn or, or, or have a, an attitude of, uh, that's very negative, you're very unlikely to hear that kind of information. Uh, it isn't unusual, however, as a psychiatrist, as a mental health professional, when people trust that I'm interested in trying to understand, when they trust that I may be interested in helping them, under those circumstances they're much more likely to be open about these very private matters. What I think was uh, uh, remarkable in talking to Michael Ross, and I've spoken with other serial killers, is just how normal they would seem if one didn't know about the actions that they had engaged in. In other words, Michael Ross came across as an intelligent person, which indeed he is. He, he was affable. There was no sense of danger that I was in the presence of someone who might do me any harm. If I hadn't known about his background, it would have been just like sitting down with any other bright young person and having a conversation. What was different in his case, though, was that I did know about the crimes he committed, and during my initial interview with him, the fact that he didn't seem to show any emotion about such terribly uh, horrendous kinds of crimes. Michael Ross confessed to sexually assaulting eight different women, uh, all of whom he'd uh, killed. He'd actually sexually assaulted uh, seven of the eight, but killed all of them. 
He also acknowledged that he had committed some other crimes that hadn't resulted in murder. Again, these were things that one might not have known had he not uh, confessed, and so clearly uh, he was trying to be candid in what he was revealing about himself. The one thing that struck me uh, a great deal in discussing his early life was the fact that he had been assigned as a very young kid the responsibility of strangling to death chickens on a farm that his family had owned or worked on. I've forgotten exactly which, but the idea that a young child would be responsible for strangling to death these, these chickens was something that struck me, particularly given the fact that when he had killed all of his victims, he had done so through strangulation. One of the things that I did observe was that he was very, very adamant that he did not want his mother in particular to be blamed for the things that he did. Again, he said he didn't have much memory of his childhood. He did not want to talk at all about his mother, in particular anything negative. Uh, I later found out through independent sources that his mother had likely had some form of mental illness, that she had treated him very badly, a lot of physical disciplining and so on. But Mr. Ross himself was very adamant that he did not want bad mothering to be blamed for what he had done and really was very hesitant to say anything about his mother in particular. I think as an intelligent person, he knew that in the past sometimes people had done bad things, that the blame was placed upon inadequate mothering. And I certainly felt that as a son who, whatever had happened, loved his mother, that he didn't want to do anything that would hold her blameworthy for his acts. In talking with Mr. Ross, uh, he would, in terms of everyday relationships, um, have respect for other people. Uh, where he began to have difficulty is in situations where he would begin to feel sexual arousal. Uh, what he had said to me is that for as long as he could remember, when it came to be sexually aroused, he was plagued with these fantasies, with these urges, with these thoughts about wanting to uh, harm and subjugate and even murder women. And this was extremely arousing for him. I remember him telling me at one point he would try to talk himself out of leaving his home for fear that when he left his home, these thoughts would be there and he'd have the urge to go out and stalk women with these thoughts running through his head. Uh, it became clear to me very early, both in terms of a knowledge of what Mr. Ross had done and in terms of what he was telling me, that he was very likely a sexually disordered individual. In other words, it's very likely that his sexual makeup was very different from the norm. Uh, any man is certainly capable physically of assaulting a woman and even of murdering her, but the average man is not having intense recurrent sexual fantasies and urges about doing so, and certainly not having those fantasies and urges to the point where it's a daily struggle to prevent himself from acting in such a fashion. Mr. Ross was describing these kinds of recurrent abnormal sexual fantasies for me, and it was almost a textbook description of what is in the psychiatric literature of someone who has the sexual disorder of sexual sadism. Uh, we very rarely talk openly about human sexuality, and we tend to think that persons are more or less the same. The fact of the matter is there's a tremendous diversity in human sexuality, both in terms of the kinds of behaviors that either do or don't turn us off sexually, or in terms of the kinds of partners that we may or may not be attracted to sexually. For example, when it comes to partners, most of us aren't a slight a bit interested in being sexual with a seven or eight year old child, 
And yet there are people with a sexual disorder of pedophilia who in some cases have no attraction to adults and yet through no fault of their own have recurrent sexual fantasies, desires, and urges for prepubescent children. In terms of how we differ from one another regarding what behaviors do or don't turn us on or off sexually. There are some people who aren't attracted sexually to folks who are alive and recurrently have fantasies about individuals who are dead. That's a sexual disorder known as necrophilia. A serial killer named Jeffrey Dahmer suffered from that disorder and sought out the ability to have sex with people who had died. Most of us, when we have sexual thoughts and fantasies, they're tied to feelings of, of love and affection, gentleness, and so on. Many of us might be capable of thinking about inflicting pain and suffering during sex, but certainly the average man is not having intense recurrent fantasies and sexual urges about inflicting suffering and pain and even killing a victim to the point where he can't extrude those thoughts from consciousness and to the point where he has to struggle on an ongoing basis not to act upon them. Mr. Ross is very different from the normal person in that sense because he was recurrently experiencing these fantasies and urges on an ongoing basis having to try to resist acting upon them and tragically without effective treatment his resolve would weaken and it ended up tragically in the deaths of eight innocent people. When it comes to sex, most of us are aware of our sexual attractions or our sexual desires and urges before we actually act on that. Many of us are aware, even in our teenage years, of what turns us on sexually, what turns us off sexually, the kinds of things we really want sexually. And then as time evolves, we eventually reach the point where in some way we've enacted those. The same was true with Mr. Ross. He was aware long before he acted that he was having fantasies about uh, inflicting pain and suffering and, and terror and even death on innocent women. Uh, he began by uh, walking around and thinking about them and fighting to resist the urges. But eventually, and this I think was during his senior year of college, uh, he wasn't able on one occasion to resist those urges. He acted upon them, and while a senior at Cornell University took the life of an innocent woman who was also a student at that time at that same university. One of the things that can be intriguing about a sexual disorder is that it isn't always instead of conventional sex, but it may be something the person has in addition to their interest in conventional kinds of sexual activity. So Mr. Ross had had some conventional sexual activities. The important point to understand is that just because he was capable of having conventional sex, it didn't erase the fact that in addition to that, he was still having these pathological, sadistic sexual cravings, and those cravings still had to be dealt with in their own right. I think in my experience in talking to others who have killed, the, the, the first murder is the one that not only is horrible for the victim, but traumatic, traumatic for the offender. Uh, Mr. Ross had, and I believe this to be true, fought these urges for a very long time. And then there came a time where he just gave in to the urge and killed. And he, he did talk about having succumbed to the urge uh, and uh, describe what is just horrendous. Uh, about how he had uh, taken this uh, person, uh, moved them over uh, to a secluded area, um, sexually assaulted them. He talked about turning the victim over on her stomach and strangling her from behind. So he was describing extremely gruesome details. He also described being very 
upset with himself after that first murder. Uh, again, he talked about this in other instances, promising himself he wouldn't do it again. But clearly, as in time, his urges again re-intensified, he did repeat that pattern. I mentioned that Mr. Ross turned the victims over and uh, that he couldn't see their faces when they died. Uh, he didn't say to me consciously that this was so uh, that they wouldn't see him or that he wouldn't see them. Uh, I can tell you, in having interviewed a number of serial murderers, that many of them talk about only being able to do it because, in a sense, they've dehumanized the individual they're killing. I remember another serial murderer, Jeffrey Dahmer, said to me, it, it might be like someone in the military who has to kill. You can't allow yourself to think of the victim if you feel you have to kill as a real person, someone that has a family that's going to miss them, and so on. So not to mislead, Mr. Ross didn't tell me that he was doing it for that reason, but certainly the way in which he engaged in these behaviors, turning them over, not looking at the victim, may have been part of how he would dehumanize and not have to be in touch with his own feelings about taking an actual human life. In most cases of uh, murders that are motivated by a sexual disorder, the reality is really an enactment of the fantasies. Uh, what the fantasies were for Mr. Ross were of uh, grabbing and uh, sexually assaulting an innocent woman. Uh, in his case, there were usually young females. Uh, the fantasy included, in conjunction with the sexual assault, strangling them, which would even further intensify his sexual excitement and actually having them die. And uh, again, part of the pathology of this disorder is that whereas most of us would be having empathy for what the victim is going through, these thoughts and fantasies and behaviors simply further intensified his sexual excitement. It is my belief that he would fight these urges and sometimes successfully. He didn't go out every day constantly acting in this fashion. Uh, but kind of like the binge alcoholic who can often resist the urge to act, there were these other times where he just could not be successful in resisting, and those are the occasions where, for whatever reason, he engaged in these murders. In terms of Mr. Ross trying to live a normal life, he was trying to do that. He would try to just go on with life and, and not be thinking about, in a sense, this, this other life that he was a part of. But you can't walk away from your own sexual urges and, and desires. You can't walk away from sexual stimulation in the environment. And so he would try to focus on what he needed to do during daily activities, but often during idle time, during times when these fantasies and urges would preoccupy him, that would draw him back into this world of sexual fantasy. And tragically, in being part of that world, ultimately it would cross over, he would give in to these kinds of desires and a total of eight times took a total of eight human lives. In terms of how Mr. Ross identified victims, it wasn't so much that he had carefully planned it out and thought about it. These fantasies and urges were ongoing. It's usually that something would trigger him off. He might see somebody and, and that, that fit into the kinds of women he was fantasizing about uh, in, in his mind. Uh, he, he might come upon someone in an isolated area. Uh, to give a, a, an example, um, even when he was in prison, these urges were still there. And he described for me one instance in which there had been a female guard, and he'd actually run away from this guard. And she was upset with him and threatened to write him up. 
The reason he'd run away is that even in that setting where he couldn't possibly get away with it, he was having such strong urges to assault her, sexually to kill her, that he was afraid he was gonna do so and that's why he'd run off. And so the point is he wasn't ahead of time knowing exactly who he was gonna attack or when he was gonna attack. There was just this constant possibility that it would happen, something would trigger it off and then he would act accordingly. I think for most people who commit sexual crimes, uh, they're not going to do it with people they know. In fact, that's usually not part of the fantasy, but they're also not usually thinking they have to go to a far-off location. So sadly, the victims are almost certainly going to be someone in a radius that's fairly close to the area in which they had been residing. M Mr. Ross did not, in the beginning, want to be caught, although in the end he confessed and, uh, in, in, in a sense, gave himself up. People sometimes confuse the idea of trying to cover your tracks with the idea that somehow that means you would have been in control of yourself. To, to just give an example that perhaps anyone can understand, uh, and again, it's tied to a biological drive. When a person has to urinate very, very badly, they try to do it where nobody's gonna see. Let's say I'm driving my car, I have to urinate badly. I'm not gonna be able to not do that. But I may look around, I may try to sneak behind the bushes, I may try to go behind the car. So Mr. Ross, in that sense, was trying not to be caught. There's a, the instinct for self-survival. That is not evidence, though, that that meant he was gonna be capable of controlling himself. One can be a sexual sadist without committing murder. In fact, diagnostically, the profession distinguishes between sexual sadism and a sexual disorder. In other words, just because someone is different, let's say a couple enjoys tying each other up, they like whipping each other gently, but they can stop before any damage is done, um, our profession doesn't think that we belong in the bedrooms of private people who are engaging in sending behaviors that don't hurt anyone. To have, a, to have it be a disorder, the individual needs to either be suffering with it or impaired in their capacity in some way. In Mr. Ross's case, he was extremely distressed about the fact that he couldn't get rid of these fantasies and urges. In his case, he was clearly, in my judgment, impaired in his ability to control himself and to not act on these urges. So this wasn't just a guy with some kinky, kinky sexual interest, so we might say, fine, let, let him be. This was a guy with a serious disorder who was impaired in his ability to control himself, who was a danger to others, who was distressed about the feelings he was having. This was clearly a disorder and not just kinky sex. I mean, God or nature put sex into each and every one of us for a very important reason. That's literally preservation of the human race. If we all stopped having sex, the human race would disappear. And so when this very powerful, biologically-based drive that we're currently wants to be satisfied gets misdirected, for example, towards sadistic kinds of sexual fantasies and urges, it recurrently wants to be satisfied, and I don't know what it takes a mental health expert to appreciate what a serious situation that can be. Furthermore, given the biological imperative of actually having sex, it would be counterproductive biologically of simply fantasizing about sex or even masturbating would be sufficient to satisfy that drive. If that was all that would take, we could take anyone who was a sexual sadist, encourage them to masturbate frequently, the danger would be gone. 
That's not the way in which human sexuality is designed to operate. There's a tremendous biological imperative that we enact our, our sexual fantasies and urges, and it was no different for Mr. Ross than it would be for anybody else. Well, this is part of a letter that was written to me by Michael Ross before he received uh, treatment, uh, talking about, uh, in large part, uh, what he was experiencing mentally. And uh, if you'd like, I can just read a brief paragraph of that. Uh, it goes as follows. Of course I shouldn't complain. What I did in reality really isn't much better than what I've supposedly done in fiction. And to make things worse, rather than being remorseful for what I've done, I, I relive the acts nightly for my pleasure and I fantasize about things I should have done during the acts, which would have generated even more pleasure. It's not enough that I've killed them. No, it's not enough I have to desecrate their deaths by fantasizing about the things that I should have done. That's a paragraph of how he's kind of deploring himself for the fact that he, instead of feeling remorse, which he knows he should feel, at that point is just preoccupied with these sadistic sexual fantasies and urges and that he can't stop getting pleasure out of them. Um, in this letter, he actually finishes it by saying, in effect, that he's just glad he has someone he can vent to. He was talking about how uh, life is on death row, how he was seen as the worst of the worst, how people would taunt him. Uh, and then here he's not wanting to feel sorry for himself because he realizes that what he did do was just so, so awful. So he was just kind of telling me what life was like as somebody who was a, a condemned man living in prison and his feelings about wishing he could feel different but still couldn't and he hadn't been treated yet extrude these very intense sexual cravings and, and how he regretted that there was pleasure associated with them. When a person goes into prison who has a sexual disorder, it doesn't just go away. If it was driving someone like Michael Ross to kill was these intense urges and there's a sexual excitement or pleasure tied to them, they're not gonna go away without treatment. So it's unusual that someone would be this candid and this open. I haven't other letters from other people talking about that, but I suspect most of them were continuing to have these fantasies and urges even while incarcerated. The sea change that I saw in him, and I saw it not only through letters he wrote to me, but he actually had a letter that was published in a major magazine, was that once he was no longer preoccupied with these incessant, recurrent, intrusive sexual fantasies and urges, his mind was freed up to other things. That put him more in touch emotionally with the gravity of what he'd done. It put him more in touch with the suffering and the pain that he'd caused others. It put him more in touch with the, the guilt that he would now have to experience and the responsibility he would have to take. It put him more in touch with wanting some sort of salvation and redemption. These were major changes that I felt occurred over time and, and to some extent linked to the treatment that he had been receiving. I'm always concerned in society when we demonize or label other human beings. Uh, I have a great empathy for those who are victimized by others, but we have to deal with reality, not with caricatures. And uh, I've come to learn over time that the people that I interview who have done bad things, uh, they, they have redeeming qualities, they have parents or brothers or family or friends who care about them, and many of them, maybe not all of them, but many of them are not defined in total by the sum of what they've done. 
I've also learned that sometimes people, metaphorically speaking, have a broken mind in need of repair, that there is a legitimate mental health issue. They're not just evil people who don't care and are doing things with disrespect or disconcern for others. So I think it's that knowledge that's helped me see the, the humanity and hopefully the ability to look at this objectively, not losing track of the, the harm they've caused, but also not losing track of the fact that there may be other factors that need to be looked at and that are still very legitimate. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to what causes individuals to have those mental factors that contribute to them becoming serial killers, uh, we look at nature and we look at nurture. Sometimes we can find events in their lives that we think probably were contributory. In Michael Ross's case, I suspect, though I can't prove with certainty, that having learned as a young child to strangle chickens in some way became sexualized and, and played a role in him becoming the person or having the disorder that he had. Uh, in other cases, and I think we need to do much more research, there is evidence that biology may play a role. There have been people who have developed abnormal sexual cravings in the midst of having developed a brain tumor. The tumors resected and those cravings disappear. We need to look much more at that. But I also often want to make the point when it comes to sexual disorders that regardless of the extent to which nature and nurture play a contributory role, what we do need to understand is that it's not simply people choosing to experience an alternative state of mind, that people discover themselves to be afflicted with these abnormal sexual cravings. They're not having them because they've chosen somehow to be different. Not everybody can control themselves through willpower alone. We used to say to drug addicts, just stop it, just don't do it. We now realize that's very naive. The person who's hooked on heroin often cannot, through willpower alone, resist those cravings. They need proper professional assistance. I worked in England for a number of years during my training with people who had obsessive compulsive disorders. I remember one man who just felt compelled every 14 days to go out and touch other people 14 times. He'd get caught, he'd get into trouble. 
but without treatment, he just could not stop himself. We see women with anorexia nervosa who look like they've come out of a concentration camp, and yet their fear of being fat drives them to the point where they can't stop starving themselves unless they get the proper mental health assistance. So it's fine to say that people should be able to control themselves, and we demand that they do, but from the mental health point of view, that's not often the case. Something as simple as overeating. People are spending a fortune to try to diet successfully and lose weight. I can tell you how to diet and lose weight, and I guarantee it'll work. Eat a little bit less every day. You'll lose weight. Something as simple as that seems to, on the surface isn't simple because the desire to eat is driven by a powerful biological urge that many people who are trying their best can't control unless they get some, some health assistance. The same is true sometimes with people like uh, the ones we've been talking about here, serial killers. It's fine to say they should be able to control themselves. They chose not to. I can tell you from experience, some of them have, don't have any more choice about being able to completely stop than the guy who can't stop overeating, who can't stop smoking, who can't stop taking heroin. Yes, the consequences are different, but the struggle internally is very much the same. When I'm exploring trying to understand behavior, I come at it from three perspectives. What's the behavior? If we're talking about rape, we know what that is. It's a coercive sexual act. What's the consequence? The consequence is terrible suffering of the victim. But in knowing the behavior and knowing the consequence, we still know nothing about the mental state that led the person to act. There's not one answer to that question of the mental state that's behind the spectrum of criminal activity. Yet we as a society tend to treat it all the same. These are people misbehaving, we'll teach them a lesson, we'll punish them, and they'll learn to behave appropriately. That's very naive and far removed from the truth in my, in my professional opinion. Uh, what I remember about my final communications with him, and it wasn't just with him, but with his attorneys, um, they had wanted to spare his life. I had been trying to convince him that uh, um, you know, there was some good to be um, had from him continuing to live, maybe more to, nor to, to be learned that would help others. Uh, his attorneys wanted me, and I didn't want him to be executed, but they wanted me to say he had something they called uh, death row syndrome or something of that sort, to say he wasn't competent to decide for himself whether to waive his, uh, his appeals and allow himself to be executed. I, I, um, I would have liked to help him, but I refused to do that because I thought that was a perversion. I think he was capable uh, of deciding whether or not to allow himself to be executed, and I wasn't going to make a psychiatric excuse that I didn't believe in, even though I was hoping he wouldn't be executed. So I remember that. Uh, I remember the last time I met with him, I tried to persuade him that uh, uh, perhaps some purpose could come out of him um, remaining alive, some, some work that we could done to better understand his condition that might help others. Um, but he, he could not be persuaded. He, he felt that uh, the, the families of his victims would continue to suffer every time there was another court procedure involving him, that he wanted to show that he was truly atoning, and he'd simply made up his mind that uh, for their sake, and perhaps for a while, uh, his own peace of mind as well, that he was going to allow himself to be executed. I'd like to believe, and I do believe, that I um, had a positive effect on um, Michael Ross. Uh, for example, he agreed to take medication that would lower his sexual compulsions while he was incarcerated. 
he actually published an article in which he talked about the change that existed within him after that, how once his mind was freed up of these intrusive and constant and incessive sexual fantasies and urges, he could begin to think about other things. He could begin to appreciate the enormity of what he had done, how guilt-ridden he began to, to feel and how he had to learn to deal with those feelings, how he had prayed and, and hoped that somehow he could have forgiveness and even meet with the souls of his victims in heaven. When he was executed, I had a sense of, of sorrow. I, I realized it might have brought some closure to some of his victims, and if it helped them, I was happy for them. But I'd also seen a side of him. I'd come to know him as a person in a way that they hadn't or perhaps wouldn't even want to. And, and I did have some sense of, of sadness. Coming up in the final two episodes of Making a Monster, the tapes, we have Dr. Eric Cullen speaking about clinical forensic psychology and Dr. Sam Lundrigan on geographic profiling and Robert Black. Alongside listening to the extra interviews on this podcast, make sure you watch the TV show Making a Monster on Crime and Investigation. Catch up on demand now. Search for Crime and Investigation on social media to stay up to date with our latest news on TV shows and podcast series. There's also a newsletter if you head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and please leave a rating and review on your podcast app. Your comments are really great to read. Making a Monster The Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.